Donald Trump versus big tech, bet on Donald Trump. Yeah, Facebook uh, has still banned him from their platform, at least for another six months. That came out today. Twitter, their ban is permanent. This is about hurting him politically. That has nothing to do with January 6th. They've been lying about that since January 6th. Donald Trump is off of social media because he's great at social media. That's how he connects with voters. They know that and they want to stop that. This is about stopping Donald Trump politically, but he's got lots of ways to overcome this. Let's review, though. He was a master at social media. We all know that. Actually, though, Facebook really wasn't his thing. It was more about his tweets. But look, even on Facebook, he did a lot better than Joe Biden. But they want to deprive him of this because he was great at it. And they're basically freaking everybody else out. If you say the wrong thing about the election, uh, you might be in trouble on social media. This is totally unfair and totally un-American. Imagine Alexander Graham Bell. I've made this point before. Quite frankly, I think it's brilliant. He, come up, he came up with a telephone. Can you imagine him selling the phone? Here's a telephone. You can have it. Talk to anybody else who has a telephone. But don't talk about the election of 1876. We know who won it. And if you say something about the election, we're going to know it and we're going to take your phone. How about Thomas Edison? Electricity for everybody, except for those who might be writing something that Thomas Edison disagrees with, and then he takes your electricity back. Hey, back then it was a private company. We got to do something about this big tech situation, don't we? We certainly do. And isn't it interesting that the things that Donald Trump was so great at, social media, uh, the tweets, uh, connecting via the digital platform, and also connecting with people face-to-face, -face, those rallies, First social media and the rallies. They basically banned him from having those rallies for the bulk of COVID. COVID. You think that might have had something to do with politics? I do. I certainly do. And how about this? The current racial reckoning we're having. Where did it really start? What was its genesis? Hmm? Its genesis was actually securing more power for Barack Obama. Yep. I want to show you something. In the fall of 2011, Brock was about a year away from re-election. He was suffering badly with black voters. His support had dropped dramatically. This is uh, shortly after he was elected in 2009. Take a look at these numbers with black voters. 92% approval, only 8% disapproval. Those are great numbers. Fast forward to 2011. 58% only approved and 42% disapproved. He wasn't delivering. He was not delivering for the black community and they noticed it and they didn't like it and they certainly noticed it in the White House and they had to do something about it in a big way. Enter Black Lives Matter. Trayvon Martin, remember that name? Teenager who uh, was in a struggle with somebody. As the story goes, he was just wearing a hoodie, buying some Skittles and was attacked by that George Zimmerman, that racist George Zimmerman. And this became really why Black Lives Matter was born over this incident. But there's a hell of a lot more to this story. My message is to the parents of Trayvon Martin. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. The shooting death of Trayvon Martin was ground zero for racial division in America. Trayvon Martin was killed for wearing a hoodie. Uh, quite frankly. I decided to produce a film on how the case affects American politics to this day. It had started as a self-defense case. 
But then, out of the blue, they found Trayvon's girlfriend. She is a minor child. This phone witness led to the most racially divisive trial since OJ. You got to check out this film, The Trayvon Hoax. It's a couple years old, but it's very, very relevant. George Zimmerman was exonerated essentially twice, found not guilty by a jury and initially uh, exonerated by local law enforcement. Meanwhile, Obama changed his tune dramatically on race matters in America. When we first got to know him back in 2008, back when he was really seeking white support, he wasn't afraid to say things like this. Too many fathers are MIA. Too many fathers are AWOL. You and I know this is true everywhere, but nowhere is it more true than in the African-American community. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. They're nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Fast forward a couple of years when his support with blacks was going down and he was not afraid to wade into just about any racially charged case and pick a side. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And, um, you know, I think they are right to expect that all of us as Americans uh, are going to take this with the seriousness it deserves. Sometimes his decisions to make statements like this were very, very strategic. And sometimes they were spontaneous. Do you remember the uh, beer summit? Beer summit held in, uh, at the White House uh, between Professor Gates and a Cambridge, Massachusetts police officer. So here's the story. Professor Gates, a uh, well-known scholar, Afro-American studies at Harvard, happens to be a very nice guy and a lot of folks know him from PBS. Well, he got back from China after a long trip and found that, well, his door was somehow locked and he couldn't get inside. Long story short, uh, somebody thought he might be breaking into his own house because two guys were messing with the door. Cops showed up. He was ultimately arrested. He had an argument with the cop. He established that he lived there, but uh, he had a bit of an attitude and things got out of hand and he was locked up. Now, charges were dropped. A lot of people who know Professor Gates, though, could kind of see how this could get out of control, how a simple misunderstanding, the cops were called by a neighbor, by the way, could lead to this guy in handcuffs. But once again, Barack Obama just took a side, even though he did not have all the facts. I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police uh, acted stupidly in arresting somebody when they, there was already proof that they were in their own home. It's too bad that he always chose to stir the pot and take a side when he didn't have to and when he shouldn't have. Now, in his own book, which I'm reading right now, yeah, A Promised Land, he got about, what, 60 million for it? He says in this book that he could totally see a scenario where Professor Gates, who he describes as loud and cocky, could provoke even a restrained and mild-mannered police officer, that he was a cocky and very loud guy, and he could see how something like this could happen. But he didn't say anything about that, did he? 
All right, so the beer summit's happening. There's something else in this book that's interesting. After this is all over, um, Valerie Jarrett, his uh, top advisor, pokes her head into the Oval Office, and uh, they have a little bit of a conversation. She said that the coverage of the beer summit had been generally positive, although she admitted to having received a bunch of calls from black supporters who weren't happy. They don't understand why we'd bend over backward to make Crowley feel welcome. And then he asked, how are our black folks doing on the staff? Valerie says, the younger ones are a little discouraged, but they get it with all you've got on your plate. They just don't like seeing you being put in this position. Which position, I said, being black or being president? Too often, it looks like he made a choice of, um, well, not being president for everybody. I'll be right back. The land of the free honors the bravest of the brave for their sacred pledge to protect our freedom, our constitution, and our way of life. We will always remember you. We will always salute you. Speed limit is 40, and I was going 38, so why are you harassing You're me? You're correct. I pulled you over because... Because you're a murderer. Because uh, yes, I started to record because you can't you're a murderer. Be a, you can't be on your cell phone I, I while you're driving. I was on my phone. I was recording you because you scared you can't, me. You can't use your cell I phone while you're recording. I can record you. May I have your driver's license? I, it's, it's at my apartment. What's your apartment? It's at my home. I'm just taking my son to his... Do you, have, a, do you have your driver's license? I, it, I mistakenly left it at home. Whatever happened to what seems to be the problem, officer? <laughs> Hello, murderer. It's got to be really, really tough uh, to be out there right now. That happened in L.A. County. The officer uh, was so professional, so cool. His boss is the L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Sir, welcome back to Newsmax. How are you? And uh, gosh, sorry about this. <laughs> uh, doing all right, Gary. How are you doing? Terrific. Um, all right. So let's get to this uh, traffic stop that went mega viral. Um, is this just some crazy nut job woman being abusive and wrong? Are you are your officers seeing a lot more of this, this kind of disrespect? This is becoming more frequent. People feel emboldened now to challenge authority, even when they're in the wrong. And they just don't care because they're seeing uh, civic leaders, elected people, you know, disparaging law enforcement left and right without cause. And it's just a sign of the times. And uh, sadly, we will see a lot more of this. Um, just thinking outside the box here for a moment. Uh, is it legal to just tell a cop you're a murderer uh, during a, a transaction like this, uh, an administrative transaction? Uh, how far, and I don't want to give anybody any ideas here, but how far can they go? I mean, when does it become too much? Is it anything they say verbally is just fine? As long as it's verbal and doesn't interfere with the deputy's ability to do his job, when it becomes a, his ability to do his job, then we get into that uh, resisting or obstructing a peace officer, and it becomes a crime. And she's uh, short of that line because it's only verbal. However, it, you can tell it's very... Uh, very uh, you know, disturbing that this is conduct is acceptable somehow. So again, she's anti-law enforcement. She also seems to be uh, 
anti-Mexican. I'm going to infer that this officer may have been of Mexican descent. That's unknown. But uh, I want to play that portion of the interaction. For, being a, for him being a Mexican racist, what is that name? Gas. It's on the citation, ma'am. Here you go, Mexican racist. You're always going to be a Mexican. You'll never be white. You know that, right? You'll never be white, which is what you really want to be. You there you go, be dear. White. Have you, a good day. You want to be white so bad. It's totally disgusting. Um, I guess my question is, though, do they... Uh, do they get a kick out of it? I mean, it's so bad, it's almost comical. You know what I mean? Um, and right. they can't all be like this. How is that officer doing? And please give him our regards. He was remarkably professional. I would not have been able to maintain my cool. So please uh, give him our best. But what is, is this well, affecting morale or are they all kind of bonding together? How is it going down? Well, when you face adversity, like the natural reaction is you bond together. You know, you form a, a circle, you embrace each other and, that's how you survive through hard times. And unlike the dip and Compton who were ambushed by a coward, he didn't dodge bullets, but definitely it was a you know verbal harassment that is too frequent these days. And I think uh, he has my support and definitely my respect because he shows a level of professionalism that uh, the lady who claims to be a teacher would be wise to emulate and uh, lost on her. Sheriff, we're going to make a small adjustment. You're breaking up ever so slightly, but I would like to send my condolences to California. I see you're following New York's mistake in eliminating cash bail. This has led to major problems. It happened, I think, in March, the California Supreme Court there. Now you're faced with the situation. You've got tens of thousands of inmates being cut loose from jail, and this has led to, I understand, pretty big uh, tensions between you and the LADA. Uh, yes, uh, DA George Gascon, we're facing a 94% increase in homicides this year alone. Last year was a 36% increase in homicide. Where does it end? These people believe this, how eliminating consequences to violent crime is going to decrease violent crime. No, it's continue to increase it. In fact, it's going to accelerate. And these people refuse to acknowledge their mistake. Terrible to hear. Terrible to hear. It's led to a total disaster for us. Hey, something I've always been curious, but what's the difference between a sheriff and, um, say, a state trooper? Well, deputy sheriff it works for a county sheriff's department, and their jurisdiction is a county. A state trooper, their only jurisdiction is on the highways and uh, freeways of a state system, transportation system. A city uh, police officer works for a municipality, a city. So we... We're kind of a hybrid between the state and city. We're in between. All right. Hey, I'm sorry for the audio issues, everybody, but uh, Sheriff Alex Villanueva from L.A. County, we thank you very much. Our best to that officer. To be continued, sir, we'll be right back. Thank you. Scary uh, and sometimes kind of funny. Who is in charge at the White House? Uh, it's a great question. It obviously isn't Joe Biden. OK, OK. Emerald Robinson is our White House correspondent. She's been watching all of this very closely. Hello once again, Emerald. Hi, Greg. Good to see you again. Well, when we're talking about who's in charge 
at the White House. I think it's important to remember what President Obama had to say during a Colbert interview in December when he said he'd like to be the puppet master behind the scenes. Listen. If I could make an arrangement where um, I had a, I had a, a stand-in, a front man or front woman, and, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement in my sweats mm -hmm. looking through the stuff, and then I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was uh, doing all the talking and ceremony, wow. I, I'd be fine with that. So if Obama is the puppet master, who are the key players? Sources tell us, Greg, that Obama loyalist Susan Rice is really a driving force, the driving force here at the White House. Now, the former national security advisor to Obama, who is now the uh, Biden domestic policy advisor, even though she has no domestic policy experience. Her placement at the DPC is a strategic one, and it's not just because it's housed in the executive office building beside of the White House. Uh, on paper, everything that comes through this administration has to pass across her desk at the DPC, according to many former White House officials that we talked to. Now, that means that in that role, she has influence over every policy that comes out of this administration. For example, every cabinet secretary has to talk to her before they actually announce any policy changes. She also has pro proximity to the Office of Management and Buz Budget, meaning that she can squeeze rules and she has influence over spending and the budget. So you pair that with her background and connections at the State Department and in national security, Susan Rice influences not only domestic policy, but also foreign policy. All right. You know that uh, Barack Obama, he almost seemed to be bragging when he told that little story. He liked the arrangement. I think he was bragging. Uh, so he could very well still be involved. All right. Uh, hey, the guy who's actually, mm, what's that big, uh, chief of staff, Ron Klain, what's his deal? Yes. So let's talk about Ron Klain. There's actually two more people that come into this uh, puppet master scenario. There's the vice president, but Ron Klain. Ron Klain is the chief of staff, and he is not exactly an Obama loyalist. Uh, he was the Obama uh, Ebola czar, and he was the chief of staff for then Vice President Joe Biden. But what I'm told is that even though they don't necessarily see eye to eye with uh, the Obama loyalists, they have a mutual agreement in what the overarching goal is. And so you have this working relationship. One source described Ron Klain as Biden's handler. Now, let's also talk about Vice President Harris because she's very important in this. Uh, as we talked about yesterday, she has a, a very heavily weighted role, much more so than her predecessors as vice president. Look, she largely owes this position, having this position to Barack Obama. According to D Democrat insiders that we talked to, Greg, Harris was actually Obama's pick for the presidential nominee for the Democrats in 2020. Remember, he has unsuccessfully tried to talk Joe Biden out of running. However, Harris could only garner 6% of support of the Democrat voters. It was Obama who convinced Biden to pick uh, Harris as his running mate. She, uh, according to former White House officials we talked to, Susan Rice can leverage her position as the vice president in helping back the initiatives that they're trying to push and get the backing of Ron Klain. 
with all those Very interesting uh, triangle here. Indeed, indeed. What does uh, what does Joe Biden get to do if uh, they're all so busy? Emerald <laughs> Robinson, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Uh, last summer, the Republican National Convention, and one of the stars was Donald Trump Jr. Joe Biden and the radical left are now coming for our freedom of speech. They want to bully us into submission. If they get their way, it will no longer be the silent majority. It will be the silenced majority. This has to stop. Freedom of expression used to be a liberal value, at least before the radical left took over. Now the Republican Party is the home of free speech, the place where anyone from any background can speak their mind and may the best ideas win. Damn. Great stuff. Donald Trump Jr., executive vice president for the Trump Organization, son of the 45th president of the United States. Welcome back to Newsmax. Great to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Yourself, Greg? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Although, you know, you were not exaggerating. Uh, what they have done to free speech, what they have done to your dad, what they have done to so many of us on social media is appalling. You know about Facebook and what they did today, what they announced. What are your thoughts right now? Listen, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, Donald Trump was one of the first people to really, you know, start fighting back against that. You know, I've done the same for the last five years against the, sort of the tyranny of big tech, uh, everything that's going on out there. I mean, I wrote liberal privilege last summer. Turns out all the predictions I made in that book uh, are coming true uh, times about 10. And that's the reality. Uh, the Republican Party has traditionally valued sort of that, you know, that freedom and, the, you know, you turn the other cheek and you accept someone else's opinion. The left is opposite. Uh, you know, their policies, you know, liberalism is their religion. Uh, this is a blood sport for them. Uh, there's nothing they won't do to prevent this. You know, they, they don't want someone to have a platform. You saw, you know, literally like at the Democrats today, like their, you know, verified Twitter account, you know, demanding that Facebook permanently ban Donald Trump because they understand that Donald Trump, unlike so many in establishment politics actually resonates with the American people. They understand what he means. He's having a conversation with them, not lecturing at them like the Democrats seem to do. They're deathly afraid of that, and that's why they want to silence anyone who has the ability to move the needle, anyone who has the ability to actually get out there and make sense of the stupidity of the Democrat Party platform and especially this administration's platform. It's amazing. He's so good at it. He's a master at it. He's a million times better at it than anybody in the uh, Biden administration. And that's where this is coming from. I firmly believe that. Uh, by the way, how does it feel for you to be out of the limelight a little bit? I mean, you're still ultra famous. Your, your name is Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, you're not you're not being subpoenaed up on Capitol Hill, which, by the way, was pure harassment. You know, we see the situation with Hunter Biden and everybody just kind of it's yeah. it's all fine. What are you going through right now the past couple of months? It's been a bit of a transition, I'm sure. Well, somewhat. I mean, you, know, you still have a lot of that nonsense, all political that's playing out, you know, all, all over the place, the sort of the retribution. Let's try to get Trump that way. Honestly, for me, 
uh, you know, whether I'm a bit of a masochist or not, I don't know, but uh, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I sort of feed off of their hate. Uh, when they come at me, when I know that I'm right, when I know that my values are sound, when I know that conservatism uh, and capitalism uh, and the, the things that we truly espouse, uh, you know, on our side of the table are right, I just, I'm willing to fight for them. Uh, perhaps it's why I've been able to make a little bit of a name for myself within conservatism. Not enough people on our team are willing to engage. They're not willing to fight. They're sort of happy to take the loss and, you know, let's just take the loss and move on, even if we're 100% right. You know, that's not really my style. Uh, so for me, not a lot has changed. I'm still engaged in the fight. I'm still out there every day. And, you know, even on some of those platforms, just because, you know, they haven't thrown me off yet, uh, you know, the reality is that's a way to get out there. So, you know, I'm all on all those platforms. I'm writing books about it. I'm on TV talking about it. We have to wake up to what's actually going on. Uh, this doesn't resemble, in many cases, an America that we all, you know, grew up in and love. Uh, and you see those freedoms slipping away on a daily basis. So we have to be engaged. We have to be involved. We can't just sit back uh, and hope that reason will prevail in the Democrat Party because reason is out the window. Common sense, it's not so common anymore. It barely exists. I love what you're saying, uh, Donald Trump Jr., really. Uh, what's your advice to people who are watching? And I'm curious, you know, you are pushing the envelope. You're out there fighting the fight every single day. Do you feel like you're on notice? Are they hassling you, big tech management? Do you get shut down from time to time? Do you get warnings? Because I do know a lot of people are holding back. You know, they just feel like I can't necessarily say that about November. I can't necessarily say that about January. You know, I, I'm afraid of the heat. I'm afraid of uh, being deplatformed. Yeah. Well, 100 percent. I mean, you know, I see that all the time. I see that, you know, I'm pretty good at the social game. I, you know, I understand exactly what's going to happen every time I hit send. And, you know, the amount of sort of fake censorship and the nonsense fact checking, you know, about either opinion or this where, you know, every, everything's out of context, meaning they can manipulate context to mean whatever the heck they want it to be, even if it's very clear. I mean, I, you know, I've had, you know, actual video of other people. Well, it's missing context. Therefore, we're going to ding you. It's like, what's the context? It's on video. It's right there. People can judge for themselves. <laughs> They don't allow that. So, you know, I've definitely been censored on a lot of these platforms. I've definitely been sort of shut down on a lot of the platforms to an extent. Uh, you know, I see sort of my engagement numbers. I see sort of the hits. I've, you know, one platform I literally, it was last week, I had close to 30 million impressions, averaging about 250,000 likes per post, and I had 304 new followers. <laughs> I have a feeling that's not statistically possible. Right. If they're not actually doing something behind the scenes, uh, manipulating my ability to get reach, they're probably saying, hey, he can reach the people who want to follow him, but no one else will ever see that thing. It's going to be buried in the ether or, you know, so far down the scroll. You know, I see it regularly. My daughter was searching for my page the other day on one of the platforms, literally types in my handle, my daughter. Uh, types in my handle and it's like your stuff doesn't show up. I show up on page six, you know, behind, you know, Don Jr. underscore three, two, six, four, one, you know, with two posts and one follower. Like it's it's pretty flagrant. You know, I, I know the game better than most. I understand exactly what things are going to do. And I also understand when I'm being crushed in terms of reach and in terms of the censorship, because it's so obvious when you've done it as, as long and as well as I have. Finally, listen, I know you're asked from time to time, hey, your name, people ask about, hey, Donald Trump Jr. for president, you know, would you support him? Your name does come up fairly routinely in those surveys. What are you thinking, if not president, senator, governor, uh, something? Uh, is that something you're looking at? 
You know, maybe in time. Um, you know, I think you got to want the job. I like being in the fight. The reality, I think I can do a lot more just being, you know, an outsider, not being beholden to anyone. I think the Republicans often get themselves in trouble, you know, as we've seen with sort of the corporate boycotts these days, when they sort of say, well, I got to be part of that establishment group. I like being an outsider. I can take on who I want, including those on our own side, you know, like the Rhinos, the Liz Cheney's, the Mitt Romney's, the Kinzinger's of the world. You know, I, I have a great time sort of, you know, not having to follow the decorum that would be required if you're the politician. Uh, so, you know, it's an honor that, you know, I, that I've shown up in some of those things and pretty high on some of those polls. I mean, I take that like it's one of the greatest compliments I could ever receive, frankly, because uh, that's from the American people, the people that my father chose to represent, the hardworking men and women of this country. Those are the people that matter to me, not the establishment politicians. So it's an honor. Uh, I'm going to be in the fight one way or the other. But, you know, maybe down the line, you never know. All right, Donald Trump Jr., we appreciate it so much. Please give our best to the family, including the 45th, and uh, take care, all right? Thanks a lot, guys. Be well. All right, and we'll be right back. Well, there is President Biden emerging from church. I believe this is back when he was president-elect. Joe Biden has been... Um, well, rather outspoken that he is a devout Catholic. He has said that. Uh, his White House press secretary has uh, maintained that. Uh, but a lot of what, forgive me, Joe Biden does uh, in terms of policy and other things is not in accordance with the Catholic Church. He knows this, by the way. Listen to this. I support a woman's right to choose. I support it's a constitutional right. I've supported it. I will continue to support it. And I will, in fact, move as president to see to that the Congress legislates that that is the law Thank as you. well. So this does not sit very well with a lot of Catholics and particularly with Catholic Church leadership. Joined now by Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione uh, of San Francisco. Once again, welcome back to Newsmax. Nice to see you. Thank you. Likewise. Uh, look, let's uh, let's tackle this. He's a Catholic. He's pro-abortion. He is uh, enacting and supporting pro-abortion policies. What does that mean for a practicing Catholic, practically speaking? First of all, I believe him when he says he feels that devotion in his heart. I can understand it was inculcated into him early in life. As it was for me, I'm not someone who wandered away at some point and came back. So I understand that that sentiment in the heart, but uh, the head also has to align with it. So Catholic Church teaching, in addition to what is we know from the Bible and from what the Church has taught throughout the century, there's also this natural moral law, like natural truths that we don't need the Bible to understand are wrong, such as killing the innocent is wrong. So when a, a prominent Catholic espouses a position that furthers a very grave evil, such as killing in, innocent human beings, that, that is a big problem because they're in opposition to a fundamental part of our faith that should be a, a value everyone accepts, but certainly we as people of faith accept. They're putting, they're out of line with that. They, for us as Catholics, the act of receiving communion means that someone accepts what the church teaches, all of the the doctrinal and moral truths, and are striving to live that out in their lives. So there's right. this incongruency there. Not all Christians, obviously, are Catholics. Uh, communion, I believe, is unique to the Catholic Church. Um, now, Joe Biden, you're telling us, is ineligible to receive 
Holy Communion. I believe you published a letter not too long ago. Uh, yes, those who reject church teaching on basically everything, <laughs> but particularly abortion, are not eligible to receive communion. Um, how is, <laughs> Joe Biden doesn't seem to uh, accept that. He, he, he drops the name of the Pope, of all people, and says that, uh, well, he said it's okay, and I think we actually have this moment. Listen to this, please. You were in South Carolina recently, yes. and a, uh, uh, a Catholic priest uh, did not give you communion. He said it was because of your position on abortion. Were you offended by that? Uh, that's a private matter. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, but uh, uh, it's the only time it's ever happened, and we didn't talk about it. He went to the press about it. Uh, and it's not a position that I've found anywhere else, including from the Holy Father who gives me communion. Okay. So who's, uh, who's right here, uh, Archbishop? The, the principle is clear that um, someone who's cooperating with a very grave evil is not, as we would say, properly disposed for receiving communion. So, I mean, you're correct. The Catholic understanding is different from Protestant churches' understanding of what that act means. Uh, so the person is not properly disposed until they repent of that and change the course of their lives. The other question is what to do when you're put on the spot and such a person comes forward. So that's why I emphasize in my my letter that I issued a few days ago, and, and bishops, uh, many other bishops in the country have said that these conversations have to take place to help help the person understand the gravity of what they're supporting. I mean, we wouldn't do this with other evils that everyone accept, accepts is evil. Um, so we, we know that this is evil also. So these conversations have to take place in advance in order to avoid these uncomfortable situations from happening. And so sometimes the community minister is on the spot and has to make a split-second decision. Uh, we avoid that by having these private conversations in advance. Nancy Pelosi um, also uh, describes herself as a, as a Catholic, a practicing Catholic. And as we know, she is uh, pro-abortion. Some might say pro-choice. Others would say pro-abortion. Um, and I believe she is uh, within your parish, within your jurisdiction, if you will. Yes. Have you had that conversation with her? Would you have that conversation with her? Uh, I have been in conversation with her, and I'm seeking to continue that conversation. All right. Interesting. Interesting indeed. So Joe Biden, I'm told, every now and then flips through the dial and catches this show. If, he, if you were to talk to him, what would your message be? Uh, what should he do, both spiritually um, and governmentally? My message would be what I uh, put in my conclusion in my pastoral letter when I address Catholics prominent in public life, all walks of public life, who are advocating for abortion to please stop the killing. This is killing of innocent human beings. Many women are in crisis pregnancies, we in our Catholic community and other faith communities do a lot to reach out to them, to provide them with resources. We need to help them. The answer is not killing her baby. The answer is surrounding her with love and support to help her make a life-giving decision. So I would say, please stop the killing. Please change course. Please confess this and put yourself back in, in a, to be properly disposed for all the communion. So there is consistency with the devotion you feel in your heart and the way the, the positions you're taking on these very critical issues. Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of San Francisco, we thank you very much.
Thank you. All right. So standing by is Grant Stinchfield. Grant, whew, that's a heavy one. Uh, but uh, well, I think uh, personally, I think Joe is uh, out of line. And uh, I didn't like the way he dropped the name of the Pope. Uh, just, you know, there are things as a Catholic that you just you don't get up for. You don't you don't um, you well, don't get communion when you have when you're conscious of certain things. Now, Joe wants to say he's a Catholic. OK, no problem abiding by the Catholic mm-hmm. rules, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, Grant. Yeah, he, he, he certainly isn't abiding by him. And look, I learned something every night on your show. I can't believe Joe Biden's watching. I hope he heard that message, Greg. Of all the messages you say, I hope he heard that one. If he is tuning in to you, and he should, by the way. Um, hey, tonight, Greg, we got Matt Gates coming on the program. You know, he's under fire for so many things. We're going to ask some tough questions. But could this be the lock em up politics that the Democrats love to play? Just like Russia and Venezuela, you're a foe of the Democrat Party. They simply want to lock you up. We'll play it all out for Matt Gates and get his, uh, his take on things tonight, just coming up right after your show, Greg. Wow, that is a huge show, Grant. Well, that's quite a booking, and I will well, be watching. I always watch, but uh, going to tweet about it and that kind of thing. Matt Gates tonight. He's under fire. Give him my best. I'm pulling for him. You know, I want everybody to be happy. I want everything to work out right. Grant, great stuff. And we'll be right back. All I can say is that the The fake fake news just doesn't doesn't get get it, do they? They don't. All right. Folks, this so-called racial reckoning we're having really seems like at times, well, a way to make certain people, like white people, feel not so great. We're having a very bizarre conversation, the media in America right now, when it comes to race. And they're revealing bias all the time. Here's an example. Another attack in San Francisco was caught on this surveillance video. An Asian man was standing near his child's stroller at a grocery store when a man suddenly started punching him. A 26-year-old suspect was arrested. In New York City, two Asian women were attacked by a stranger with a hammer on Sunday. This one is tough to watch. Yes. No arrests have been made in that case. Now, the attacks come, of course, as the United States celebrates Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I'm proud that this network, our network, has been on the forefront of reporting these attacks because they've gone underreported by the Asian American community for so many years. It's important to show because it's disgraceful and there's no excuse for it. And quite often, the people get away. That's the problem, too. They do these vicious, vile attacks and they just walk away like nothing happened and there are yeah. no consequences. It's got to end. I hope we, we put a spotlight on it and, and it doesn't. We'll yeah. continue to put a spotlight exactly. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very profound conversation there at the end. Oh, it's very, it's terrible. It's terrible. Well, it is terrible. We all know that. Uh, but here's the peculiar thing, and I would not have noticed it, uh, say, a year ago, but I certainly notice it now. <sighs> all right. Both of the assailants here. Uh, are black. One is a black male. The other is a black female. That's not necessarily the part I would have noticed. Um, What I'm getting at is this. The anchor, uh, the reporter named Vlad, he just called one a suspect. He called the other a man. And then I heard the word attacker. Okay, fine. And we can see for ourselves the, uh, the ethnicity of the attackers. All right, that's fine. But Why do they make a big deal whenever the attacker or the suspect is white? They stop everything and make a big deal out of that. 
The suspect arrested 150 miles away after a chase is a white man. His name is Robert Aaron Long. He's going to take the word of a mass shooter who happens to be white against the lived experience of the Asian American community. Yeah. It's humanizing the shooter once again. Yeah. And well. can I point out that the shooter is a white man who is alive after they knew that he had killed eight people. And he was armed. And he was armed, and they yeah. knew that too. Did you catch that the guy was white? Said it like three times. I was one. Um, why is it mentioned there, but not in the other case? Who's going to feel awkward about that? Who's going to feel weird about that? And by the way, these were both anti-Asian cases. Stunning, isn't it? Kind of unfortunate and sad. And I think we all know what's going on. I'll be right back. Hey, you know what's fun and you know what most people don't do anymore? Read magazines. Well, Newsmax has a great magazine, and actually a lot of folks are reading this. It's got great, great stuff, and it's run by uh, my next guest, who happens to be a colleague, Ken Chandler, the editor-in-chief of Newsmax magazine. Welcome back, Ken. How are you? Hey, Greg. It's great to see you again. All right. My only beef is Joe Biden's on the cover, <laughs> but that's okay. It's a great story. Mount up from heaven. Biden's $5 trillion mother of all spending sprees. Wow. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay. So basically, Joe Biden is a man in a hurry. This is a 78-year-old president who's figured out that he really only has a little over 18 months left. Uh, to, to make his mark on history, to, to put on his, his great society, his new deal, whatever you want to call it. So he has unveiled this unprecedented spending plan, uh, almost actually almost $6 trillion uh, for infrastructure, social programs, COVID recovery. And let's be honest, uh, parts of this program are, are, are quite popular. I mean, who doesn't like the government when they're throwing free money at us? But what hasn't really been focused on is how we're going to pay for all this. And that's what we look into uh, in, in this article in, in, uh, in Newsmax magazine. And, you know, when the president tells you that nobody earning less than $400,000 a year is going to have to have their taxes increased, that's absolutely not true. And we lay out in the article exactly uh, how everybody is going to be paying the bill for this. Excellent. Ken Chandler, uh, it really is fun reading magazines again. I highly recommend it. Our editor-in-chief and folks, you can get the magazine and you might be able to get something else uh, pretty cool as well. Ken, take care. I'll talk about this for a moment. Uh, let's see here. You can get a free emergency radio. It's the Dynamo Emergency Multiband Radio. It's a powerful radio that lets you stay informed throughout any type of emergency. Yeah, when uh, you lose your internet, you're going to want one of these things, and that could happen in an emergency. Get this $30 radio for free with Newsmax magazine. Call that number, or you can go online, newsmax.com slash radio 411. All right, stand by for Stinchfield. Matt Gates tonight. We'll see you later.